Well, good morning if you are joining us for the first time. Welcome to New Life Church Online. And um, we have been going through a series of the book of Acts over the last month. And it's been encouraging to see how the Lord uses His church for His glory in um, 2,000 years ago as well as He does even today. So I hope you are being blessed and you are being encouraged through this series. We have been looking over the last two weeks on the first sermon that Peter preached where 3,000 people were cut to the heart and were born again, put their faith in Jesus Christ. And today we look at the last part of that sermon as people respond to that. So um, we want to read Acts chapter 2, the last portion of the sermon, verse 27, sorry, verse 37 to verse 41. The title of my sermon this morning is How Salvation Works. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. So remember, they had heard the sermon and they had heard Peter's appeal. So that's the context there. When they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are afar off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So, this, so those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. So here we come to the end of this amazing sermon where so many people were convicted of their sins. And we want to see why. That's what we want to look at this morning. How come they were convicted? And I think we all have many questions in our lives. And our lives are filled with them, especially in these trying times. But people spend their lives asking themselves all types of different questions. And I think one of the main questions that humans ask themselves are, how can I make a lot of money? <laughs> I'm sure you've heard that. Maybe your children have asked that question. And when we end up making that money, the next question to be asked is, how can I make myself more money? How can I make myself more money? Um, and what can I do with this money to enjoy my life? Maybe you've heard the question, how can I make myself more handsome or desirable or, or, or more beautiful? And maybe another question you've heard is, how can I be sure that I will live long enough to enjoy my money and to enjoy my fame and to enjoy my kingdom? And I think Maybe the most important of all of these questions is what kind of legacy can I leave behind that will ensure that people will remember me after I am gone? And do you know that not one of those questions really address what is most important in life? And I'm sure you can resonate with some of those questions. But the most, the most important question that we need to be asking has eternal significance, has eternal significance. 
And these are the two questions that man should be asking themselves and questions that we should help our children to be asking. And the first question is found in Matthew chapter 16, verse 15. When Jesus said, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? We know God the Father answered it this way. This, talking about Jesus, is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. You'll be surprised. People don't know the answer to that question. Simon Peter, in Matthew chapter 3, he answered the question, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So every person's destiny, eternal destiny, rests on how they answer that question. And what is your answer to that question this morning? What is your answer to that question this morning? I think you would agree with me that that is an important question that we need to be asking ourselves, as well as our loved ones, as well as our friends. Who do you say that Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? But I think the second most important question that we find in the Bible is found in our text this morning in verse 37. And we see in verse 37 the question, after they had been cut to the heart, after they had been convicted of their sins, is here in verse 37, what shall we do? What shall we do? And the question they are asking is, what must we do to be saved? What must we do to be saved from this sin? And this was the same question that was asked by the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, which we will look at, I'm sure, later. And this is a question that arises out of a, a heart that is touched by God, a heart that is convicted by the, the gospel. And it's a question that gets to the heart of man's greatest need, our greatest need. And the truth is, man, humankind, mankind doesn't need more money. We don't need to build our empire. We don't even need to really leave a legacy. We don't need more things. We don't really even need better health or, a, or longer lives. What we need is to be saved. What we need is to be saved, rescued from our sin. We need to be in a right relationship with God. That is the most important thing that we need in our lives. And in our passage this morning, Peter gives us the answer what to do. How shall we be saved? And remember, Peter is preaching the first gospel message to the, to the first church, the first New Testament church. And people from all over the world have gathered there at Pentecost. And he preaches this powerful sermon. And he explains in detail how a person can be saved. And he tells us in a very clear terms how anyone can come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior. And he tells us how salvation works. And that's the title of my message this morning. And that is the thought that I want to, that I want to magnify on. I want us to look in detail at this morning. So let's examine this morning how salvation works. It may be that someone here listening this morning today is asking themselves that very question. What must I do to be saved? Or maybe a friend that you've sent this message to is asking that question, what must I do to be saved? So if so, this message is for you. 
And this passage answers the question, the need that you have. So let's take a few minutes to think about the subject, how salvation works. And my first point this morning is from verse 37. And it really is the first step. And that is conviction. And that is conviction. See verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? So the first step is conviction. That's my first point this morning. And the Bible says that those who heard Peter's sermon were cut to the heart. Now the word cut means to be pierced through. It means to be stabbed. It means to be greatly agitated or greatly troubled. And what they heard that day caused them to be agitated, caused them to be troubled, caused them to be stabbed in the heart, cut to the heart. And that's what conviction is all about. That's what we mean when we talk about conviction. And the word conviction really means to persuade or convince the mind by evidence, by evidence. And that's what we try and do. Even though emotions are important, remember our emotions can be manipulated. Our heart is desperately wicked. So in order to be convicted of our sins, we need to address the mind. The mind needs to be convinced. The mind needs to be convicted. And we see in our passage this morning, this message that Peter preached, the people there, thousands of them were convinced in their minds of the truth of what Peter was preaching. And when they heard what Peter was preaching about, they were preaching, he was preaching about the Messiah. He was convicting them, he was convincing them that they had crucified this Messiah that they were waiting for, that they had heard prophesied in the Old Testament. And they were convinced that this was true. Even though they had crucified him, they realized they were guilty and this was true. And they were touched very deeply in their hearts. Let's, let's open that up a bit. What were they convinced about? What were they convinced about? And we've seen this already, so I'm just going to briefly skirt over this. We saw from verse 14 to verse 21 that they were convinced by the fulfillment of God's word. And we saw Peter using Old Testament prophecy, using Old Testament portions of Scripture to help them to be convinced. And Peter was just reminding them of what God had said. He was reminding them that God had said this particular day would come. And they were convinced by the fact that God had kept His word. God had kept His word. We saw from verse 22 to verse 36 last week that God convicted them of the fruitfulness and the faithfulness of His work, of His work through the Lord Jesus Christ. So as Peter talked about Jesus... He was talking about a man of whom they had heard much about. And they realized that this Jesus wasn't just a man, that he was sent by God, that he was accredited by God. They had heard of his claims to be Messiah. They had rejected those, but now they were convinced that he was, in fact, the Messiah. They had heard of that Jesus had been crucified. Some of them might have even been at his crucifixion. 
But there were rumors all over Jerusalem that this man who had been crucified had risen from the dead. And they were convinced of this. And remember, there were 500 people running around after the resurrection of Jesus, claiming that they had seen Jesus in the flesh after his death. And now these followers of Jesus are filled with the Spirit, and they are telling the multitudes that they, are, that they were witnesses to this risen Savior. You see, the day of Pentecost was exactly 50 days from the day that Jesus was raised from the dead. And it was only separated by 10 days for, from his ascension. He had ascended and then 10 days followed, and then it was Pentecost. So for 40 of those 50 days, Jesus had lived with them. Jesus had eaten with them. He had worked among them, and he had instructed his disciples of what to expect when he was gone. And the people in the crowd had heard the rumors, and they came to see this resurrected Savior. And the disciples were witness of the Savior to them. Rumors of stolen corpses, rumors of empty graves, rumors of terrified disciples and frightened Jewish leaders, they, they were all expelled by the witness of these disciples. And one of Jesus' followers is telling them the same thing now. Peter himself is reminding them that this same Jesus that they had crucified was risen and that he was a witness to his resurrection. And they were convinced. And they were convinced and pricked in their hearts. We see in verse 15, we see in verse 32, that they were convinced by the faithfulness of God's witnesses. This crowd had certainly heard about the terrified disciples hiding in the, in the upper room. Now they see them standing boldly they see them preaching courageously in the power of the, the Spirit of God. They were no longer these cowards hiding away. And people were convinced by their witness, their bold witness. And this crowd saw the change in these frightened disciples. And they also understood the risk that these disciples were taking in standing and proclaiming Jesus as Messiah. They knew the risks that they were facing. And when the message was preached in such power, they acknowledged that this message was indeed the truth from God, and it convinced them. So we see three ways that they were convinced. And I want to remind you this morning, if you are saved today, or even if you are lost, when I talk about lost, I, I mean if you are lost in your sins, if you do not know Jesus as your Savior, we pray that one day you will be saved, that one day you will know Jesus as your Savior. And God uses all of these methods and, and other ways to convince people of their sin, to convince them that He is the Messiah who can save them from their sins. And I'm sure maybe you can resonate with one of those ways that the Lord used to convince you and to bring conviction upon your heart and to cut you to the heart of when you first realized that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah who you needed to bow down to and worship in order for your sins to be forgiven. 
So what is conviction? Conviction, it is God Himself taking whatever steps are necessary to convince you that His claims concerning His Son, Jesus, are true. They are real. And it is God bringing you to the place where you can see yourself as a, as a lost sinner in need of a Savior. And where you can see that Jesus is your only hope. That is true, biblical, genuine conviction. It is God bringing you to the place where you cry out, just like these people did at this message where Peter was preaching, what must I do to be saved? What must I do to be saved? And this is not a, a negative thing. This is a needed thing. And not just what Jesus himself said about conviction. Look at John chapter 16, if you would, with me. In John chapter 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I do go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. So that's what Jesus has to say about conviction. And until there is conviction of sin, remember a person has feels no need for a savior and what is there to be saved from they may ask if they are not convinced that they are sinners before the holy spirit brings conviction the sinner needs to think well he, he needs to understand that he in fact is is a sinner and i think before we understand it we all think that we're pretty good people before that we all think that well we haven't murdered anybody, or we haven't robbed a bank, or I'm not a terrorist, I'm not a bad person. And we need the Spirit of God to help us understand that, yes, our hearts are desperately wicked, that we are, in fact, sinners in need of a Savior. And even though we live moral lives, our hearts need to be regenerated. And when the Holy Spirit begins to convict us about our sin, when He starts to convict us about our unrighteousness, when He starts to convict us about judgment, we begin to see that it is God who will judge not just our outward actions, but also every thought, every thought and any, every careless word that we have spoken. And the greatest day of our lives is when God shows us when He opens up our eyes to this wonderful truth, when He convicts us of this wonderful truth, this is, this is the day our life begins to change forever, for the better. And this is the day you take the first steps towards Christ, towards His salvation. But the second step that we want to look at this morning is conversion. And that's my second point, conversion. We see in verse 38 to verse 40. Read with me, if you would. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, 
every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Verse 40. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort him, saying, Save yourself from this crooked generation. So remember, the people have been convicted from this message. And Peter tells them how now they can be converted. And he tells them how salvation is, is brought about. Notice verse 38 there in the beginning, the first portion. Peter tells them to repent. Peter is telling them repentance needs to happen. What is repentance? What is repentance? How would you describe that to your children in a couple of sentences? Well, here's a good definition. Repentance is a change of mind that results in a change of action. John Calvin, in his famous book, The Institutes of the Christian Religion, he defines repentance as the true turning of our life to God, a turning that arises from a pure and earnest fear of Him. And it consists in the mortification of our flesh and of the old man and in the vivification of the spirit. A lot of... Um, um, old English words there. I know Vincent and Michelle are going to moan at me for that, but um, let me explain, okay? <laughs> let me explain. This is something that God grants. This is something that God grants at the moment of salvation, repentance. It is necessary for our salvation, but the believer must also practice repentance. It's not just a once-off thing that we do. It's throughout our lives. Here's another definition. Uh, Louis Burkhoff the author of this systematic theology, he defines repentance as that change wrought in the conscious life of the sinner by which he turns away from sin. Now, repentance is not just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance is not just being sorry for being caught. I'm sure we all feel sorry, but, but God doesn't want to know how we're feeling. He wants to see evidence of this conviction and it involves a turning away from our sin and this is the plea we see in in verse 40 but genuine repentance is an absolute necessary ingredient when it comes to our salvation now ask when you ask somebody for their testimony of faith listen for that word repentance because it's so necessary, people think that they can come to Christ without turning from their sins. People think that they can worship Jesus without forsaking their sins. You can't do that. When you repent of your sins, you will forsake your sinful lifestyle, your sinful habits. And just let me preempt this, because I know some people will say, well, I'm still sinning even when I'm a Christian. The Bible doesn't talk about perfection. It talks about your direction. What is your direction when it comes to sin? Are you walking towards Christ and away from your sin? Or are you enjoying your sin? You're not willing to forsake it. That's not biblical repentance. Repentance is more than just feeling sorry 
for your sins. It's more than sorrow over being caught with your hand in the, in the cookie jar. Repentance is about a change of life. It is a renunciation of the old life and the embracing of the new life in Christ. Repentance means changing your mind, changing your view about that sin, agreeing with God that yes, this is sin, I agree with you. Changing your views, changing your values, changing your goals. One's life is lived differently as a consequence of that. Your behavior, your affections, your lifestyle changes as a consequence of that. But there's a problem when it comes to repentance that we need to address, that we need to deal with. And the problem is that we can't bring repentance upon ourselves in ourselves. Man cannot repent of our sins unless God grants us this gift of repentance. The Bible is clear that repentance is a gift from God. Let me show you a few verses in Acts chapter 5. We read in verse 30 and verse 31. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Underline those words, to give, to give. Look at Acts chapter 11, verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent and they glorified God saying, then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. Notice here, God granted repentance. Underline those words. So genuine repentance is not just turning over a new leaf, not just changing, not just quitting your, your bad habits. Because that won't last if it's done in your own strength. Because it is the effort of man and not a result of the Spirit. It is a work of the flesh. Genuine repentance is a, is a work of grace in the heart of a, of a sinner that makes him desire to be a, a new creature in Christ. But don't despair, okay? Don't despair this morning and think that, well, therefore, I don't need to repent or I cannot repent because I don't feel that way. I'm not convinced yet. If the Lord is speaking to you about this this morning, then that conviction has started. If you are arguing with me about that, that conviction has started. And the Lord is granting you this understanding in your mind. And He is calling you to be saved. Then He is extending His grace to you already. And who the Lord calls and who the Lord convicts, He saves. The Bible tells us it is the Lord who calls His sheep. And the sheep respond. The sheep hear the master and they follow. So be encouraged this morning. Maybe if you are angry with me this morning, it is a good thing. <laughs> it is a good thing. The Lord is speaking to you. He is convicting your mind this morning. Let me give you an illustration. Hopefully that will help you understand this. Some years ago, a murderer was sentenced to death in the United States. 
and the murderer's brother, to whom the, the state was deeply indebted for um, his services, he went and he cried out to the governor of the state for his brother's pardon. And this pardon was, was granted because of all the, um, the work that this brother had done for the government. And of course, this brother was so excited, he went to visit his uh, brother in prison with this pardon in his, in his pocket. And as he's sitting with his brother, with a glass screen in front of him, he wanted to ask his brother a few questions first. And he said to his brother, what would you do, he said to him, if you received a pardon? The brother didn't know. His brother had this pardon in his pocket. And this is how he answered. He said, well, the first thing that I would do is that I would track down the judge who sentenced me, and I will murder him. And then the next thing that I will do is I will track down the chief witnesses, and I will go and murder them as well. Well, of course, the, the other brother, he stood up, and he left that prison that morning with a pardon in his pocket. He was hoping that there was some repentance in his brother. In his brother's mind, he was hoping that his brother had been convic convinced in his own mind that, that he, in fact, was guilty, that he, in fact, was in need of repentance. He never saw any of that. And if there's no repentance, there can be no pardon. If there's no repentance, there can be no pardon. Imagine that brother gave his other brother that pardon, and he was allowed to be free that day and walk on the streets. Terrible consequences. If we are not convicted of our sins, if we are not convinced that we are sinners, terrible consequences. Genuine repentance is not about turning over a new leaf. Man cannot repent of his sins unless God grants that repentance. And the Bible is clear. Repentance is a gift from God. So be thankful for that this morning. And be willing to allow the Word of God to wash you and your heart and your mind so that we would be convicted and convinced in our minds that we are in need of a Savior. Allow the Word of God to work in your heart. Be willing to come to church. Be willing to hear the Scriptures being preached. And be willing for your mind to be convinced that you need a Savior. Well, the, the third step that we see here in this passage of Scripture is the confession. We see that in verse 38, the second part of verse 38 to verse 40. We see the, con the confession. And this conversion involves confessing the Master, confessing the Master. Peter calls on these people, we see at the second part of verse 38, to be baptized to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. They had to confess the Master. Peter's not telling them that baptism is going to wash away their, their sins and baptism is going to save them. Baptism is a work. We've looked at that last week. But he is telling them that openly identifying themselves 
with Jesus Christ through baptism in the name of Jesus is a public testimony to the fact that they have already received the message of the gospel. So remember, many of the people that Peter had preached to in their hearts had believed on Messiah and they had accepted the fact that this was true, that Jesus was the Messiah. But remember the context. These people were Jews. Most of these people were Jews. 99% of these people were Jews from all over the world that had come to Jerusalem to worship at the Passover were now convicted that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. They had repented of their sins. They had been granted repentance. And now Jesus says, now Peter says to them, be baptized. Identify with Jesus. This wasn't a small thing. This wasn't a small thing. I'm sure many people, and I'm, even today, and I'm sure at this time, were tempted to say, well, let me just confess with my, with my mouth, but not with my life. This is, this is not something that I want to do. Confessing with my mouth openly, publicly, that Jesus is my Savior is going to get me into trouble. And Peter doesn't want to tolerate that type of Christianity. Peter doesn't want us to tolerate that secret Christian or secret disciple mentality. There's no such thing. There's no such thing as a secret Christian, a secret disciple. He wants those to come to Christ who are really serious. And so what he does here, he makes a formality here that is, is a graphic symbol. But even more than that, it is a graphic renunciation of their Judaism, of their former religion. Now they have to graphically renounce that publicly in front of people who are going to persecute them for that. He's saying, I don't want you to be a secret disciple. I don't want any of that. If you mean it, I don't only want you to change your attitude. I want you to change your association. Now notice it says in verse 38, be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ. Peter's making it very clear here. Remember, in Judaism, there were all types of baptisms. There were all types of washings which um, the Jews would perform. And they could have been washed and it wouldn't necessarily have connected them with Jesus. So he says very specifically here, I want you to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. That was tying them with the Messiah, with who he was. There was a, a transformation that had to happen, a genuine transformation that had to happen in the lives of those new converts in order for them to have truly done this seriously, genuinely. It meant that their families and the rest of their world would, would count them as dead. They no longer would be tolerated in the temple. They would have been kicked out of their homes for denying their former religion. The most despicable thing that a Jew could do would be to come to Jesus Christ. Remember, the Jews thought Jesus was a, was a blasphemer. They had determined and decided that Jesus was worthy of execution. They had just killed him for doing that, for blaspheming in their definition. 
But Peter says, I want you to make a public act of severing your ties with Judaism. And now a new identification with Jesus Christ. So I want you to be baptized. Baptism being a symbol of union with Christ. This was a big step. It was a big step. And again, I want to emphasize, baptism does not save. But receiving Christ by faith does. And Peter is trying to get these people to openly admit that they have done this, that they have embraced the gospel. And then he wants to see external evidence of what is happening or what has already happened in their hearts and in their lives. And that's the function of baptism, and it's still the function of baptism today. Now, do not miss this. The fact that salvation does not come by external rituals such as baptism, but it comes through believing the truth about Jesus Christ and embracing Him as our only hope of salvation. We see in verse 39 to verse 41, in fact, we see in verse 41, the Bible tells us that they gladly received the word. So we see that this conviction is real. They're not pushing against what Peter is saying here. They're willing to be baptized. They gladly received his word and were baptized. And that day, 3,000 souls were added to the church. And they became church members. <laughs> church members. You see how significant that baptism was. It was an act to everyone watching that they were now members, part of this local church. They accepted the gospel message. They openly identified themselves with Jesus Christ. And this is the essence of salvation. It isn't about going to an altar and saying a prayer. And maybe some of you have done that. I know as a child, I lifted up my hand many times in gospel meetings and went forward to many altars thinking that this act would save me. It's not about that. It isn't about signing a card at a, at a gospel meeting and putting your name down there. Okay, I want to be saved. It's not about that. It is about hearing the truth of the gospel and receiving it by faith. And that's demonstrated in the act of baptism. This is why the Bible puts it so simply time and time again. Jesus said it himself in John chapter 3 verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him. It doesn't say that whoever signs a card or whoever lifts up their hand or whoever does anything else get baptized. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Again in John chapter 6 verse 47 Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. Receiving by faith the evidence that we have heard from the Word of God about Jesus. And Paul said it this way to the Philippian jailer in Acts chapter 16, verse 31. And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. And God himself says it this way to all of us, to the whole world. 
in Isaiah chapter 45, verse 22. Turn to me and be saved. In other words, believe and be saved. All the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is none other. Faith and repentance really are two sides of the same coin. I'm not talking about something different here today. Repentance looks at the aspect of turning from our sins. And faith is the hand that receives God's free gift of eternal life. And the thought that a person could knowingly hang on to his sins with one hand while he receives the gift of salvation from a holy God with the other hand is not a biblical idea. It's not a biblical idea. Charles Spurgeon, the famous Baptist preacher, he said, I do not believe in the faith that is unaccompanied by repentance. Repentance and faith are twins. They are born together and they will live together. And as long as a Christian is in this world, both will be needed. So let's conclude this morning by summarizing the question, what must we do to be saved? How would you answer that to your children? I think we know, don't we? Those are the simple steps that teach us how salvation works. If God has spoken to you today through His passage and you haven't, taken those steps and you are convinced and convicted in your mind and in your heart that you have never repented of your sins well maybe today is the day of your salvation if you're under conviction and you know that Jesus is who the Bible says he is and that you know that you are a sinner in need of a savior I invite you this morning to call upon the name of the Lord and believe that Jesus will forgive you if you confess your sins and believe that Jesus will wash you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Call upon the name of the Lord and you will be saved. Maybe you have professed a relationship with Jesus at some point. Maybe you have. But in your mind, you're thinking this experience that you're talking about today, Pastor, doesn't line up with, with, with my experience. It doesn't line up with what the Bible teaches about being saved, then I invite you as well to come to Him. Don't put your faith in your church attendance. Don't put your faith in your parents' religion. Don't put your faith even in your baptism. Maybe you, you have been baptized, but you've never repented of your sins. Then don't trust your works. Trust the work of Jesus Christ to forgive you of your sins. Put your faith in Him today. Believe in His work today. What Peter preached 3,000 years ago, well, sorry, what Peter preached to the 3,000 people 2,000 years ago is the same message that we need to hear today. When he preached his message, people were convicted in their hearts. I'm sure, well, I don't expect... 3,000 people to be convicted of their sins this morning, probably because 3,000 people aren't watching this morning. Um, however, I do expect that God would honor His Word. I do expect that God would honor His Word today. And I humbly ask you to listen to His Spirit and to respond 
to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit who is cutting your heart this morning if He has spoken to you. If we can be of any help, please reach out to us. Let us show you if you are still not convinced that Jesus is the Messiah who came to save us from our sins. Please pray with me. Father, we do thank you for the gospel. Thank you for this message that has been recorded for us in such detail. Thank you, Lord, for even the response that we see from this message that has been recorded for us. 3,000 souls cut to the heart, convinced that they had killed the Messiah, that they were guilty of putting him on the cross. Lord, please grant conviction to those who are watching this morning. Honor your word this morning. Help them to see that they are in fact guilty of nailing Jesus to the cross. That we all are guilty of putting him on that cross because of our sin. Because a sin price had to be paid. And it was the cross that would save and pay that penalty. Lord, please, I pray that you would work conviction this morning in our hearts. And bring about repentance for the sake of your name. You, Lord, are worthy to be praised. And thank you that we can do that through your son, Jesus Christ, who has brought reconciliation through the death of himself on that cross. Help us to believe and help us to turn, Lord, from our sins. And that evidence would be evident in our life of that repentance as we work for your glory this week, Lord Jesus. So, Father, I pray that you would honor your word today, save the lost, and comfort those who need to be comforted for the sake of your great name and for the joy of your people. I ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.